Matthew chapter 28 in your Bible, please. The subject today is the mission that never changes. The mission that never changes. And I read from Matthew 28, verse, beginning in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away from Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And then he says, Amen. So be it. We know that as the Great Commission. One of the most familiar passages of Scripture, if you go to a Baptist church that is Bible-centered and is interested in reaching people for Christ, you will notice also that it's the last words of the Lord Jesus before He ascended. In the book of Luke, after He said that, it says, and He ascended to heaven. And so, last words are remembered, aren't they? Last words are important words. The last thing Jesus said to us was these words, the mission that never changes. Thank you, and you may be seated. I've told you many times my hero as a preacher is Adrian Rogers, pastor of the Bellevue Baptist Church in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Adrian died of pneumonia in 2005. He knew he had colon cancer. He knew that his days were numbered. And Adrian, just about, I think, 10 days or so before he died, he made a little short video. It's only about a minute and 50 seconds. And I want you to listen to the words of Adrian Rogers today, and we'll play that little video for you right now. Turn your attention to the screen, please. There's never been a greater day to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to stop whining and moaning and, and complaining, going around with our head between our knees singing, hold the fort. <laughs> we need to lift up our heads, sound the trumpet, unsheathe the sword, and say, onward, Christian soldiers. My friend, I want you to meditate on this verse. The three great truths that I want to rivet into your heart, his unlimited power, his unchanging program, and his unfailing promise, he will not fail you. You want a thrill? You want something that counts? You let uh, Congress make the laws. You let uh, Wall Street handle the finances. Let Hollywood have the fame. You become a winner of souls. He that wins souls is wise. God bless you. That's Adrian's farewell speech. 
And I like what he said, let Congress make the laws and let Wall Street make the money. And I like it when he goes, and you be a winner of souls. That's what counts for eternity. And that is the unchanging mission, the mission that never changes. He shared three thoughts there, three truths he referred to them. First of all, God's unlimited power. You find that in verse 18, where Jesus said, all power, all, A-double-L, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. And then secondly, Adrian referred to God's unchanging program. You'll find that in verse 19 and 20. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. God's unchanging program. And then there's God's unfailing promise, the third truth, His unfailing promise. And what is that? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world or the age, if you will. Now, those three points are my outline today. And He gave me the bones and the skeleton here. Now, I'm going to try to hang some meat on it and sinew and muscle for the next few minutes. And I want you to notice with me, first of all, God's unlimited power. His unlimited power. He said in the video there a a moment ago, we shouldn't be sitting here dejected and down at the mouth with our head down between our knees singing, hold the fort. We ought to be singing, onward Christian soldiers. And boy, that's the message we need so badly today, don't we? in the world in which we live, when it's so difficult to try to do the Lord's work, the social distancing and the mask and all the impediments and difficulties that we have, and yet we can't sit here and say, we're going to hold the fort. We've got to be saying, we're going to charge forward. We're going to be the Lord's work. We're going to do the Lord's work with whatever limitations may be placed upon us, but we're still going to do the Lord's work. We'll find out what we can do, and we're going to do it, and God has promised us His unlimited power. Now, if you want to circle the word power there in verse number 18 where Jesus said, all power is given unto me, and you write in your Bible, that's a special word for power there. It was exousia which is a Greek word which means authority. So here's what Jesus really said. All authority, I have all authority in heaven and in earth. Imagine that. Jesus said, I have all authority. I have all jurisdiction. I am in charge. I am the boss of everything that's going on both in the heaven and in the earth. All power, all authority is given unto me. And then he begins with a command. He says, since I have all this authority and power, I want you to go. I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. Now, in the book of Mark, Mark gives a little variation on that. And he says, I want you to go take the gospel to every creature. So, a nation is a is a multitude of creatures, isn't it, It, of individuals? And so you have nations which 
comprise the whole world, and you have individuals which are every creature. It's as big as the world and as small as one person, this thing that we call the Great Commission. And the Lord Jesus says, and I'm going to give you the power to do that. I'm going to give you the authority to go and take this gospel to every place upon the earth. And in the early days of my ministry, I met an old preacher from Kansas. He had been an evangelist for a number of years, and then he went to start a church. His name was Art Wilson. And Art Wilson was a feisty, fighter-type personality. And I heard him talk about when he had decided to leave evangelism and go and plant his church in Wichita, Kansas. He had a friend in Wichita, and the friend said to him, I've got this lot, this piece of land. It would be a nice place to start a church. Now, the lot is all grown up with weeds, and it's littered with bottles and paper and stuff. But we'll get some friends, and we'll go over there and cut the weeds down. We will clean the lot up, and you can pitch your tent there. And the strategy was they were going to have a big tent revival. People would get saved. They would take the converts from the tent revival, baptize them, and organize them into a church. Good plan, especially in those days. And so Art Wilson began to do that. They pitched the tent. They started their meetings, and they just were getting a good start when a little fellow came out there one day from the city or the county, sort of a Barney Fife, you know, that was feeling his oats. And he came out and he said to the preacher, he said, preacher, you got to have a permit to do this. Where's your permit? And Art Wilson said, I, I don't have a permit. Well, you've got to have one. He wrote him out a ticket and gave him a date in the court. And so he appeared before the magistrate and the magistrate said, Mr. Wilson, who gave you the authority to come to Wichita and pitch that tent? And you say, you're going to plant a church here. Where'd you get your authority for that? You're supposed to have a permit from the city. And Art Wilson said, I don't need one. I have plenty of authority. And the magistrate said, what do you mean? And he had his Bible in his hand, and he said, this is all the authority I need, this right here. And he pointed to the flag over in the corner of the courtroom, and he said, that flag over there and this Bible right here, the First Amendment over there and the Great Commission right here, that's my authority. That's my power. Well, I like a fellow like that, don't you? Well, you don't know if you like him or not, huh? Why, sure, I like that kind of fellow, sort of a gutsy, feisty guy that says, I'm not going to be stopped by every little problem that comes my way because I have the unlimited authority of the Lord Jesus Christ behind me to preach his gospel. Now, I want you to notice who Jesus gave that to. Who does it say that he spoke, was speaking to? Look in verse 16. There are 11 disciples there, or we now call them the apostles, a group of men who were specially chosen of the Lord to be the foundation stones is the way that he says it later on in his church, in his spiritual temple. And these men laid the foundation for the gospel for the rest of us throughout all of time, right down through the centuries. And so Jesus gave this commission. He gave this to 11 people, the disciples, the apostles, but listen, they are the 11 members of his church. He had already founded his church back here in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, where he said, I will build my church. And so now these men were the 11 members of that first little church that ever existed. 
Now, here's what I want to, here's the point I want you to make, I want to make to you. That is that the Great Commission, the mission that never changes, was not given to these 11 individuals. And it's not given to individual people today. It's given to the church. The Great Commission, first of all, is the property of the church. It's our assignment. Had he given it to the 11 apostles, they all died within 50 years. And so the Great Commission wouldn't be binding upon anybody today. He didn't give it to families because there weren't any families standing there according to the text. He didn't give it to parachurch organizations because there were no parachurch organizations until after the 1850s or so when the first uh, type of ministry that today we call parachurch ministry. He didn't give it to a mission board. It could not be able to carry out the Great Commission. He didn't give it to a TV ministry or a radio preacher and say, I want you to take the gospel and baptize and make disciples of the whole world because it would be beyond the capacity of any one of those types of groups or agencies to do. He gave it to the church. And why did he give it to the church? Because the church is a perpetual institution. And so a church comes and it starts as we did 50 years ago plus now, and our church is built, and we send out people, and we perpetuate ourselves. There could be a day when the Florence Baptist Temple will not exist. I hope it never comes, but it could happen. But do you know what? The work that has been done here will perpetuate itself. As I stand here and you sit here today, somewhere up in North Carolina, Zach Viola, a little guy who came here and walked to church from way out on Third Loop Road and then later on found out that we had some buses. And he grew up in Sunday school through the bus ministry. And then Zach went to college up in Boston. He doesn't, he never met his father. He hasn't seen his mother in 10 years. He is absolutely on his own. He has zero family in the world. This became his family. He came here and people accepted him and people loved this little waif, this little boy. And he went to college. And I'll tell you what, I didn't need to give him any lessons on how to handle his money in the ministry. He's the only college student that we've ever had that I know of here who went off to Bible college for three years and came home and he had money in the bank. He had worked hard and saved his money, and he had been frugal. And then he came here and served here on our staff, as you know, as sort of an intern for a couple of years or so. And he said, God has called me to take the gospel to another nation. And then he's determined now that it's Panama. And today, Zach stands in a Baptist church somewhere. He is presenting his vision, his dream, his goal of going to Panama. And what's he going to do after he raises his money and gets to Panama and marries his little wife in December? He's going to go there and spend the rest of his life planting churches. And so the church is perpetuated from the Florence Baptist Temple to Panama. And that church will start some people and it'll go everywhere. And so the Lord gave it to the one institution 
on the earth that can perpetuate the work from now on until the Lord comes. It's the only institution that can carry it out. Imagine what kind of world this would be today if every church in America had as its number one priority, we don't care if we do anything else, but we are going to carry out the great commission of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be a different country today? If that was the priority of every single church and every single pastor and every single, every single Christian in each church, it was given to the churches, and God gave them the authority to do this, the backing, the jurisdiction, the power, as Jesus said. And you know that command requires supernatural power. You can't do that in and of yourself. I can't do it by myself, and you can't do it by yourself, and our whole church doesn't even have the power. It requires a power that is literally supernatural. And in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, you stay here in Jerusalem, and then I'll give you the power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. And when he comes upon you, then you shall be my witnesses. Don't go out and even try to witness until the power, until you have the power. Get the Holy Spirit's power on your life. And then go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And in Acts chapter 2, the power came. And it was visibly demonstrated. And people could see that the Holy Spirit had come upon his churches. And they began to take the gospel all over the world and you and I are here today because down through the centuries, people have been willing to give their life, their money, their children, their everything they had. The Great Commission, the mission became their priority in life. And the power that that gospel has as it works in and through the hearts of people is still a miraculous thing. You see, the gospel has the power to convict people of their sin. To When a person hears the gospel and the Holy Spirit works in their life, they understand, hey, wait a minute, I'm a sinner. I have done wrong according to the standards of God himself. There is a barrier between Almighty God and me. A holy God can't accept me and bring me into heaven because this sin issue here. I have the disease. I've been contaminated. And that person feels helpless and hopeless as well they should. But then the gospel has the power not only to convict but to convince. And they hear it and they begin to understand as somebody witnesses, as they attend a church where the gospel is preached, and they become convinced, they change their minds about themselves. They cease depending upon their good works and their religiosity and their spirituality. And they begin to depend upon what Jesus Christ did in six lonely hours upon a cross 2,000 years ago. And once they begin to depend upon that and believe in that, then a miracle happens in their life. And not only are they convicted and not only are they convinced, but thirdly, they are converted as well. And those who were dead in trespasses and sins now are given wonderful eternal life and a whole new vision of what life is about, a whole new purpose for our very existence. I was studying at home Friday morning, and the call came 
that Dr. Harley had passed away. I had been there the day before, and I prayed with him, but he didn't even know I was in the room. And so we were expecting it, but it happened. And so I went over late in the afternoon, sat down with his wife. And as we sat there and chatted, I said, I've heard Al tell me so many times in the offices as we were together chatting for a few minutes. I guess I've heard him give his salvation testimony three or four or five times. I mean, he was always talking about it. And Sidney said, yes, he talked about it all the time. I'll never forget the day, 1978. A guest preacher was at Calvary Baptist Church over here on Cherokee Road. His name was Peter Lord, who, by the way, Peter Lord was the very best friend of Adrian Rogers. So, you know, small world, isn't it? Peter Lord came to town. Somebody at the hospital told Dr. Harley, you ought to go hear this preacher that came in here from Florida. And so Dr. Harley said, I kind of got pressured into it, and I went over there. And he said, I got there, and I heard this man preach, and I'd never heard anybody preach like that before. He said, I can't tell you why. He just had the power of God. He was anointed. Every word he said was like a dagger driving it through my heart. And I listened, and he said, Bill, I had no intention of becoming a Christian the night I went to Calvary Baptist Church. But after Peter Lord preached, I got up out of my seat and went to the front of that church, and I received Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I've never been the same since. You see, his wife said to me, from the day Al got saved, he was a different man. Power to convict of sin, power to convince us of the truth of the gospel, and then power to convert. Paul the apostle experienced that. And you know his story. He was the persecutor of Christians, and he then became the leader of the Christian church in the first century. Why? Because the command that Jesus gave us has supernatural power. There's power all over it, power to change people's lives and to convert them. I take a kernel of corn, one little grain of corn. I take it out, and I plant it. And a corn stalk comes up, and let's say it has Two ears of corn on it if it's healthier. Maybe even three in some places. Two ears of corn. And I looked up, the average ear of corn has 800 kernels on it. Average. Good year. A really productive year, it might ha- they might have up to even 1,200 kernels. And there's two ears. And so there's 1,600, even 24, 500 kernels of corn on those two ears. Somebody else takes those. And they plant it. Now we have a field full of corn. That's the way the gospel works. It is the power of God unto salvation, the Apostle Paul said. It has the power to convert the world, and the Holy Spirit is able, if God's people would just take serious this mission that never changes. But my second thought to you today is that unchanging program in verse 19 and 20. What is the program for the church? The program that Jesus gave should be the program of the Florence Baptist Temple, should it not? And what is that program? Go, therefore, starts with going. You can't do the program and stay. We can't carry out the program and sit here in the walls of the church. The program requires go. Go, therefore, and he says, teach all nations. Now, the other versions of it say go and Preach the gospel to 
all the nations or something like that. Go and be witnesses to all the nations. The idea here is of evangelizing. And then secondly, there's a three-part program here. First of all, there's evangelism, which is to preach the gospel, the good news that follows the bad news. What's the bad news? Well, the bad news, as I said a moment ago, is that I'm lost, that I have sinned against God, and that the Lord cannot accept me. He cannot accept my sins. And not only am I a sinner separated from God, but it's really important to remember I can't do a thing about it myself. I can't save myself. I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. I'm unable to carry out anything that would help with my salvation. I'm totally dependent upon what God has done for me. That's the bad news. But the good news is wonderful that God looked down and loved us and that God, in order to save us, became one of us, that God became a man through Jesus Christ at Christmas time, the incarnation. And then that that God who loved us and came to the earth to become a man went to the cross and died for our sins, became our substitute, took our place, died in our stead. It was like I was hanging there on the cross. He was doing it for me. And then after dying, three days later, he resurrected from the grave and ascended back to heaven. And the message is simply this. If you will believe that, meaning if you will trust in that and nothing else, if you will depend upon that and rely upon that, you will receive this eternal life that we're talking about right here. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That is the only gospel that there is, by the way. There's only one. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is our program is to evangelize, and secondly, to baptize. Now, baptism is really the test, our willingness to be identified with Christ openly before men, that I'm not trying to be a closet Christian here. I'm happy to be associated with my Lord Jesus Christ, which means now I have to live up to what I said. I don't, I'm not saved by living up to it, but I know that if I have any integrity in my soul at all, if I say I'm a believer in Christ, I've got to come out and I've got to let people know that. And that's what baptism really is. It's identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, thirdly, it's discipleship. He says, teach them to observe. Now, let me tell you how so many Christians read this. They read it, teach them. And if you're not careful... The church turns into nothing but a teaching operation. And people go and sit in Sunday school classes for 40 years, and they listen to sermons for 40 years, and it's teach, 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 hoping they're going to get better. Let me, let me give you a little secret from the inside after 50 years of experience. You can't teach people into spirituality. The operative word here is not just teach. It is teach them to observe. Observe means obey. You know what characterizes a, a disciple? A willingness to obey. A willingness to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach them to obey. So evangelize them, baptize them, 
They come out, identify themselves as believers, and join with us in the church, and then they learn to obey the Lord. And that's a process. That takes a, that's a lifelong task of spiritual growth. But I'll tell you what, if you have a willing heart, God can do that in your life personally, and He can do it in the church. Now, this, that's the program. There is no other program in the church. We have other strategies. We have methods that we use, and they change. We don't do everything the way they did it in the first century or the 10th century or even uh, 50 years ago. Times change. We modify our approach, our methods, our strategies, our philosophies. But you know what? We never, ever change the program. As Brother Adrian said, it's God's unchanging program for all time. Now, men try to change it. They're trying today. And every time they try, it fails. The big hot trend in church today is this whole woke movement that we become uh, a part of the social justice movement. Now, let me tell you, I am for helping people with their material needs. And I think that Christians ought to be interested in, in repairing injustice wherever they find it. But I want to tell you something. There is zero, hear me, 0.000 power in the social gospel. The power of the gospel is in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's in the cross. It's in the preaching of the cross that men will be saved, the Bible says in first, first chapter of Corinthians. And hear me, the social justice movement will destroy our gospel-preaching churches. It's the greatest threat to our churches today. That's why I keep mentioning it to you. We are not a woke church here. We, I don't want to say we're asleep, but we're not woke. We are not a social justice church. We are a Christ-centered church. We're not chasing a utopian dream of some kind. We're not trying to make the world, as Adrian Rogers said, a better place to go to hell from. Our goal is to take the gospel of Christ that changes and transforms people's hearts and makes them fit for eternity to take that to every single person that we can. And I'll tell you, it's hard right now. This COVID thing has been a big, big interruption to us. It makes it very, very difficult. But though it's difficult, we've got to find ways around it. I'm, I'm trying to do that beginning tomorrow night with this Team 13-3 thing. Because without Sunday school and without all the other programs that we're used to having here, we've got to find a way to keep going toward the goal and the challenge that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to us. And so, if you can, I hope you will be there. We're just modifying our approach to be able to take the gospel, the unchanging program of the church. People have had to do this before. We're not unique. I've read quite a lot during the COVID thing because it's a parallel. I've read quite a lot about the days of the plague. You think it's bad now? In Europe, one-third to one-half of the population died in almost every European country during the 15th century. 
One-third to one-half of the people died. They couldn't even dig graves fast enough. They would stack bodies up and then take them and put them in mass graves. Sometimes they had to burn them because they couldn't even. There weren't enough well, healthy men to dig the graves, which had to be done by hand. You read those stories, and you find out there were Christians all over Europe, and they said, this is not going to stop us. Now, we're going to take the precautions, and they didn't really even know what was causing them. It was a horrible thing. No, there wasn't any technology or science then to help them figure it out. I don't know what they did without Dr. Fauci. But at any rate, they made it somehow. Martin Luther and his wife turned their home into a little hospital. Can you imagine? Were they afraid? Yes. Did they know the risk? Yes. And yet they would not be stopped. And they took the precautions, but they didn't let it stop the work. Now, we're not going to be foolish here. You can see how diligently we really work at this. You should not be sitting closer than six feet to any other human being, after all, unless it's a family member or a friend that you choose to do that with. There's a pew between each of you, and there should be six feet between each of you, front, back, and sideways, because we really are concerned that you not get this disease. We've had four, five, six people now in our fellowship that have contracted the uh, infection. They didn't get it here, and they, in no case did they do that. And they know that, and they will tell you that. We're doing everything we can. But, ladies and gentlemen, we can't just stop and park and say, well, someday we'll get back around to that. You know what? In all probability, if we ever quit, we probably won't. It'd be awful hard to get things started again. And so we want to be safe, but we want to understand the Lord Jesus Christ gave us a commission. He gave us a program to carry out. He will help us. That leads you to my third point, verse 20, His unfailing promise. His unfailing promise. His unfailing promise is the promise of His presence. He said, I will be with you with you. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Now, read the rest of that, until the end of the world. But the word world in the Bible comes from several, several different words in the Greek. It's not talking here about the end of the planet or the universe. Let me give you a little alternative rendering. I will be with you until the end of the age. The age. What is the age? It's the age of grace. It's the church age. He's saying, I will be with you until I come back because the church age will end with the rapture. And so Jesus said, you go and you carry out my program and know that I am right there with you until I come again. The next time you see me will be in the rapture. And until then, I will be with you. Now, there's no promise here we won't have difficulty. There's no promise in the Bible that you won't get sick. There's no promise in the Bible that you won't 
perhaps even have to endure poverty. Millions and millions of Christians have. There's no promise in the Bible here that you will never be persecuted or have a trial or anything like that. There's no promise that God's people are not going to suffer. In fact, Christians have had to suffer and suffer just for their faith down through the centuries so many times. We forget that because we live in America. In America, we're so spoiled by freedom, we've overdosed on freedom in America. And we have affluence, and we have prosperity, and we have money, and we have opportunity. Nobody's ever enjoyed what we have outside of America. With all of our warts and flaws, this is the greatest place that people have ever lived in all of history. And the Lord Jesus Christ promised us, now, whether you're in prosperity or whether you're in poverty, whether you're in sickness or in health, it doesn't matter. I will be with you. Here's the thing people say to me so often. I read that pastor that Jesus, I know God said he would always be with me, but I can't feel his presence. I can't feel him. He didn't promise you that he would, you would feel him. You see, his presence is the Holy Spirit within us. You don't feel a spirit. A spirit doesn't stimulate your touch, your taste, your smell, your eyes, or your ears. The spirit world is extra. It is beyond. It is above. It is transcendent over the physical material world. It's a different dimension. And the Holy Spirit is in that dimension. And you and I live in physical bodies. And so the spirit doesn't stimulate the emotions or the physical senses. The spirit is with me, though, based upon the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who made that promise? Would Jesus Christ have lied to us? Would Jesus Christ tell me, I will be with you, and then he abandoned us in the 1800s or some period in between? No. And so he is with me. Now listen to me. You don't trust your feelings You put your faith in what he said. In the spiritual world, we don't operate by feeling. We operate by faith. A different way to say it is we apprehend or grasp or claim his presence in our lives by faith, not by feeling. I don't know what people mean when they say, oh, I just felt the Lord. I don't think you did. I think you felt something emotional or physical. Because the Holy Spirit is a spirit being. You don't feel spirit beings. But you approach them through faith. Did Jesus Christ make us a promise? Will he keep his promise? His presence is grasped not by feeling, but by faith. And listen to me. We're going to need that promise.
because one of the reasons I wanted to preach this today is just what's happening around us. And I keep referring to it, but I want to encourage you. And I want to tell you, you better get hold of this. Last week, the Supreme Court ruled for the second time in three weeks on a religious rights case. The case was basically this, that in the state of Nevada, the governor said, a a church can't have more than 50 people in attendance. It doesn't matter what size the building. If it's a little church or it's a big church, in other words, if we were in Nevada, this church, the maximum amount of people that could attend the service would be 50. You can imagine what 50 people would look like spread across here. Yet, they ruled that the casinos could have up to 50% of their capacity. And so a casino that would be as big as this room, which would not be uncommon, they could have 50% of their capacity. Say they could have five or 600 people, but the church could only have 50. The case went real quickly to the Supreme Court, and the court heard it, and they ruled five to four to uphold the governor. In other words, they didn't strike that down. It's still that the churches can only have 50, period, total, and the casinos can have 50%. Judge Gorsuch, one of the Supreme Court justices, ruled, or he wrote the opinion of the, you know, the, the losers, as I call it, the people on the losing side, the defendants. And Judge Gorsuch said it was the worst abridgment of religious freedom that he had ever seen. He was highly critical of it. And basically, here's what they said. If you operate a church, you can have 50 people come maximum. But if you put in a craps table and a roulette table and some poker tables, you could have up to 50% of your capacity. (laughs) So I guess if we were in Nevada, we would put in some gambling tables in here somehow. That's the convoluted, distorted thinking of a world that's just literally gone mad. You want me to tell you how mad it really is? Two nights ago in Portland, Oregon, those, quote, peaceful protesters, they took an American flag, folded it up, laid it on the street, and doused it with gasoline. They took a head from a dead hog and put it on top of the flag, put a policeman's cap on it, and lit it. Now, the news media was talking about it was improved. This is the world we live in. I haven't told you the worst. Then they brought the Bibles. And they doused them with gasoline. A number of Bibles. And for the first time in my adult life that I've ever heard in the United States of America there was a group of people who publicly burned the Word of God and the American flag. This is the world we're trying to carry out the mission in. And it's difficult. And the Lord understood it would be difficult. And many other people down through the ages, it's been difficult for them. 
But we cannot, as Dr. Rogers said, put our head between our legs and sing, hold the fort and quit and back up. We want to do what we do safely, but we don't want to ever stop till Jesus comes. And we're going to need His presence. We're going to need His people, and we're going to need His church like we never have before. How do you respond as a Christian? Bow your head, please, with me, if you will.